So Lisa, for the very first time, I heard the phrase shame storm and I didn't know what it meant. I was working with a coaching client and this person brought up shame storm and I was like, oh, okay, this is outside of my common vocabulary. Maybe I need to look something up. And this person mentioned identifying as a white person, but spinning in this shame storm that was really hard to spin out of in order to be a useful ally. And so I thought to myself, "Mm, let me put this on my radar as far as a word that we may want to add to our operational global uh, glossary, if you will, because it sounds like something that could be useful in our work. Have you ever heard of shame storming? I haven't, and I absolutely do not want to be in the middle of it because it sounds horrible. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it, I know, it just it feels like a spin, like a spin cycle that you can't get yourself out of. Oh my so, gosh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so the first place that I found this language was under Brene Brown's work. So I think we should talk about it. Sounds good. Let's do it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So we know that Brene... Brene Brown is pretty prolific. Let's just say that Uh, anyone that's been connected with um, uh, Oprah Winfrey and been kind of catapulted um, in their work along Oprah obviously is a name that most people will recognize. And what's interesting is that based on my little bit of research, not having read her work, but mostly have been uh, watching her TED Talks and so forth, what I realize is that she categorizes herself as a shame scholar meaning that she does research on shame. Her scholarship is focused on it, how it develops, et cetera. And so Brene talks about shame and guilt being two different things. And I'm like, what? My my brain is still trying to process what she means by this. Um, And so, you know, you and I, Lisa, we've heard obviously of white guilt. You know, we've heard of that pretty often. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this belief that white people have this collective responsibility for harm and racist treatment of people, et cetera. So heard of that before, but this shame storming and the guilt as well, she's kind of parsing these out into two different things. So apparently guilt is something that's helpful, but shame may not be. And so I'm just trying to kind of parse these out. I'm trying to get these definitions together here. So yeah, I'm not a Brene Brown scholar, but uh, clearly right. she's she's on to something because people are reading her work and trying to figure themselves out through that lens of this shame storm. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm also not a Brene Brown scholar. I have read very little of her work, which perhaps is quite shocking, but I just have never gotten around to it. Um, I wonder, you know, because I'm mm-hmm. thinking you and I have talked about guilt, white guilt, male guilt, um, heterosexual guilt, however it manifests in the context of privilege and how it's just not useful getting stuck in it, right? Because that really limits your capacity to be an ally in those moments where maybe mm-hmm. you are, um, mm-hmm. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Paralyzed or not paralyzed. That is an ableist word where you are mm-hmm. frozen and unable to do anything, but perhaps yes. then a, according to Brene Brown, we might be slightly off there and actually it's shame Mm -hmm. 
that is creating the frozen moment and not guilt mm. if she's ar- arguing that guilt is productive because then I would even say so is the concept of quote-unquote white guilt wrong is it actually quote-unquote white shame is how we right. should be talking about it right 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 because when the way I'm understanding it is Shame is defined as something that's intensely painful, an intensely painful experience of feeling flawed or unworthy of love and connection. Now, I can see being frozen by shame and guilt. Now, this is when it gets interesting because guilt is supposed to be this helpful tool, especially if it's leveraged well. And so, you know, I'm just trying to work through in my brain. There may be some groups or some identities broadly, speaking broadly, some groups that have so much shame that it indeed freezes them from doing the work of allyship. And then in my, uh, in my opinion, there may be some folks that don't have enough of it and absolve them from doing the work because they may be self-absorbed in some ways. And so I'm, I'm just wrestling with that, with that mm-hmm. concept of, mm-hmm. you know, at, at what point do we use either as a reason, an excuse, a perfectly logical explanation right. not to wrestle with other identity issues, right? So that, that's where I'm kind of caught up with this because, you know, we're, yes, absolutely. We're calling white, male, and any other privileged individual mm-hmm. in whatever identity group to think through what does it mean to kind of hijack one identity and then we get into oppression olympics again Uh, yeah Yeah. how do we stay out of oppression olympics i did not have a good answer for that (laughs) right Um, right right it's just this is okay so now i'm like going in my head it's really this is just a really interesting way of rethinking about this because Mm -hmm. um we, when we think about guilt, we've talked about it before that it often manifests in defense, right? So I feel guilty that I'm white. And so my kind of knee jerk reaction to that is a defensive response around, well, I didn't own slaves, right? That's not Mm -hmm. my fault as Mm -hmm. as a generic kind of example, right? Right. So, but is, is that, So then is what's the response, is the defensive response actually a product of guilt or is it a product of shame? Because I'm feeling like shame Mm. is deeper, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a much, shame in the context that I know shame, it's often, it's Mm. related to some very different things, but it's destructive. It's very destructive and it silences people. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So then, I don't know, so maybe defense, because it's a verbal articulation often, is guilt. Mm -hmm. And then shame is a much deeper, more unnerving feeling that doesn't, Mm -hmm. that people with privilege don't even articulate. Mm. But that's that's maybe what's driving guilt. I don't know. I feel like I'm going around in circles here. No, no, no. I think, no, I think you're getting somewhere because, you know, I, I always bring up that wonderful chapter on race. Um, in the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle, where she talks about this addiction, if you will, to racism by this country and how we literally have to detox ourselves from our addiction to racist systems and the notion of how most white people, the worst thing you can call them is a racist. So everything in their being 
functions against being labeled that. Whether you firmly believe that you are not part of a racist system or whether you feel guilt about what you have that you did not necessarily earn and it rolled down to you historically, I think there is some defense mechanism at least to the notion of racism because we find it really hard for people to make the distinction between racist and racism. Usually, I'm talking about systems. Now, I have no problem naming that someone is a racist. However, most of the time, nine times out of 10, if I'm talking about race, I'm talking about a system within which we all function. Now, we can get down to the racist, but I'm starting with the system that uh, enables many people to be racist, even in the passive sense of the word. And so Uh given that, uh I think there's something to what you're saying around how people choose to defend themselves. I, I don't think any white person would willingly take it if someone said to their face, I believe that you are either racist or you have racist tendencies, and they would not respond in some type of way. They wouldn't just take it and say, maybe you're right. I don't know. Let me think about it. Da da da. I think it ends up being more of, uh, yeah, I might have made a mistake, but let me give you the 90% of me that's not racist. You know, there's always some type of explanation or defense against it. So I think, you know, those types of feelings of guilt and shame still try to bat away even the notion of racism or racist Mm. individual. I I just feel like it's almost like a, a boxer that, you know, never lets their guard down. It's like, I'm a white person. I'm keeping my guard up because at many points in my life, someone is going to accuse me of being a racist or being part of a racist system. What do I have to do to defend that and show all the good things I've done and how kind I am to people and all these other performative things, um, which may be that deeper level of shame that you're mentioning? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, because shame, you know, I think as Brene kind of couches it is very painful, right? And it's this feeling of unworthiness. Yes. And- yes. So, yeah, I'm thinking to my, like, if, if someone said that I was racist to my face, it would definitely contradict the sense of self that I have or the construction of my identity, right? And so I think the feeling there might be like, <clears throat> if I had said something and the response was, you're racist because you said that something, I think there would be like a a veneer of guilt about saying the thing and then wishing I had never said the thing. Right. Mm. But underneath Mm. that, I think for me, it's would be a deeply painful experience. And so I would be ashamed. um, And I think that shame would come from this internal versus external perception of me. Right. Like, trying yes. and, and the the lack of alignment at least from that person's perspective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah who, who you thought you were versus how you're perceived right and I think that that is that mm-hmm. feels more about shame than about guilt don't you think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I agree because I, I could see someone being deeply hurt by that deeply mm-hmm. hurt yeah um, even in the face of all of their work and intentions and yeah I could see that for sure So then to your point earlier about some people maybe need to feel more guilt because if guilt is productive and can kind of drive us to make changes, then so, Mm. you know, I'm a woman, so I'm oppressed based on my womanhood. If I say I'm dealing with it's it's 
you know, it's already hard work being a woman in this world. I don't have time to feel guilty mm-hmm. because of XYZ's experience, right? Like I'm trying to yeah, focus on yeah. the womanhood. Um, right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's a covert way of playing oppression Olympics, frankly. It, as you, true as that may yeah. feel, I think it might be a covert way of of playing oppression Olympics and kind of watering down and diminishing how we all can play a part in everyone's liberation. You know, like I, I don't feel that it's okay. And, and hopefully people know my body of work and what I've done and what I haven't done. Yes. As a black and female human being, I know that I'm oppressed in certain areas, but that does not absolve me from being concerned about my Asian siblings or being concerned about my LGBT folk. And that doesn't absolve me for doing that. So I'm saying that my identities and the identities that I belong to, however oppressed they are, that is my reason, perfectly logical one, my perfectly logical reason for then not being concerned with other identity groups, ignoring slights against those particular groups. Like I've seen this literally happen in action where someone will be up in arms if they or a family member or a friend is called the N-word, but then you're okay with either turning away or simply ignoring when someone else is called some type of derogatory term. I'm not okay with that. And and I know that it's a lot because it is truly a distinct burden to carry your own oppressed identity groups. But to me, I feel like that should sharpen our spidey senses as well. <laughs> if, if you've been through it or your identity groups have experienced it, then you should pick up on it when it's happening to other groups as well. Right, right. But is so then, okay, so then you call that person out, right? Based mm-hmm. on everything you just said, like, why are you not, mm-hmm. why are you not frustrated, angry about this slur that was used when you are about mm-hmm. this other slur? And they right. respond with, I don't have time to be thinking about all these other groups because I'm living this really um, oppressed life. Right. Is that, does that come from guilt or does that come from shame? Mm, see, that's what I don't know. I, part of me feels like it's, it's neither and should be more. I I feel like it's neither and should be more because I feel like, you know, it's if I say I'm too busy being black and female to worry about my Asian siblings, then to me, it feels like I don't have enough guilt, meaning that if we're looking at guilt, I'm not being adaptive. This is not helpful. I have absolutely no psychological discomfort with what other people are feeling right alongside me. And Mm. much of it is similar to my own experience. So, you know, for example, let's talk about loving versus Virginia and same sex marriage. That's one of the key areas where I see my my short hair here. It it should be shorter as much as I pull it out, because I'm thinking to myself as African-Americans in this country that have wanted the freedom, first of all, to marry each other as African-Americans. And we didn't even have that legally because we were property. We weren't people. So jumping the broom is quite quite literal in black households um, and relationships. In fact, I still have my, my broom in my, uh, in my storage. Um, So as black people, we weren't allowed to marry each other. Then moving forward with loving versus Virginia in certain States, black people were not allowed to marry white people or, or white people were not allowed to marry black people. In fact, white people were um, disciplined, if you will, for marrying anyone with one drop of black blood. You have that. And then it, 
does it make sense to you that individuals who are same sex could not marry up to some point? This is the same. We we passing by the same rock three times. Yeah, here, yeah, Lisa. yeah. It's the same rock with different identity groups. And so to me, that's why I'm calling all of us, but I'm definitely speaking as a black woman, I'm calling more folks who are of oppressed identity groups to absolutely continue fighting the good fight for our communities, but also see the very clear parallels in other communities and not absolve ourselves and say, oh, well, I ain't got time to fight their fight. I'm fighting my own fight. Actually, we're all fighting our fight. We're, we're fighting our fight because yeah. if you can do it to one group, then you can do it to multiple groups and you just have Groundhog's Day. Yeah, I'm wonder. I'm just. I'm wondering though. Like, do you, you meaning the royal you, you know, put barriers up, psychological barriers up, because you have experienced so much intersectional oppression, that to then be called mm. out that you're not sufficiently advocating or supporting other communities who are experiencing oppression kind of calls into question your sense of self again around being an advocate, a social justice, justice advocate, but it's also around survival, you know, like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. being yeah. so tired. And so that's not shame or guilt, but I just, I wonder like if that perspective isn't so much self-absorption as it, as much as it is a survival strategy in a world that is not made for you. Ooh, the the first word I thought about as you were describing that was I don't know if this is a term in our DEI world, but just straight up racial fatigue, racial exhaustion. Like I, right. I think it's beyond fatigue now. I think it is exhaustion in many ways where you are tired. And you know, Lisa, I don't know if this happened for you, but at a certain time period over the last couple of of years, um, even a little bit prior to the pandemic. I was so exhausted by certain things that I did turn the news off and I didn't, you know, I wasn't staying up with the news, not yep. because I didn't yep. care, but because I was truly exhausted and not quite sure how much I could personally handle. So I think there's a, a you have a great point as well. It's like how much of it is uh, not necessarily shielding oneself from, from, you know, being called whatever ist, um, but I don't want to poo-poo self-care here, but you see what I'm getting at? It's it's kind of yeah, it's kind of yeah. like self-preservationist kind of sorta. Um, so I do hear that. I do hear that. You know, how much can you actually mm -hmm. handle or not? And if you can't handle it, being okay with um at least not condone. I don't know. I, I have a feeling about silence being uh, condoning certain things. Yeah. Silence being complicit, certainly. And I think about, you know, sure. we've talked about, you know, passing the torch. If you need a break in DEI work, we've talked about the necessity of self-care, self-care to rejuvenate. And I think what we're getting at here is something a little different, um, you know, trying to understand mm -hmm. kind of the root of avoidance, right. And if it's, mm -hmm. if it's shame, per Brene Brown's definition, then it would be destructive. And if it's guilt per her definition, then it can actually be productive. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah. if it's neither of those things, then I don't have an answer for that. But, you know, like right. so, right. Right. the self-care, the self-preservation is all very important, certainly. But that's, I think that comes from a slightly different place, from that exhaustion, from that survival 
mm-hmm. and how shame or guilt plays into that. I'm not exactly sure, but I feel like it's yeah. around in there, right? Like, yeah, not, not yeah. a not a storm, <laughs> as much as it is kind of a, right. I don't know, some soft pillowy clouds moving around you or something, right? That you can't quite touch because you can't quite figure out <laughs> what it right. is. Right. Exactly. Well, and and that's the thing when you're in the you know in the eye of this so-called shame storm. You know, I, I think it can go either direction on the spectrum. Maybe you don't have any shame at all about anything. You don't have any guilt about anything at all. You are busy trying to be you and either your oppressed self in this world or your non-oppressed self in this world. There are certain groups that aren't oppressed in many different ways. So you're still on the spectrum of shame, nothing to a lot. <laughs> and both ends could possibly be highly dysfunctional depending on how severe they are. And, you know, so my question is, you know, it's kind of two questions in one. How do we help people spin out of a shame storm if they are in them in that privilege? And how do we help oppressed individuals to think in more parallel ways so that they can at least see similar oppression across groups? It's there, but it takes a moment to really think. Right. You know, so. Yeah, I, I don't want white and or male and or privileged people to get stuck in a shame storm because that's not useful to our work, Lisa. No. If they're stuck there, it's not useful. Well, and it feels like shit too, right? Um, oh and that's, gosh, yes. That's, you know, and I just, I'm mm-hmm. as you're talking, it's just making me think more around like I feel guilty for saying or doing X. Like I have a, mm-hmm. but I could potentially repair that. It's redeemable in some way, right? Like it's, Whereas shame feels more like I am ashamed of my ancestors, for example. Mm-hmm. I can't actually mm-hmm. change that. Like that's just always right. there, right? right? And so if I right. get stuck or wedged in this feeling of shame about what my ancestors did before me and how horrific mm-hmm. that was, I can't move mm-hmm. forward. It's all like an apologizing for it doesn't make any sense either because it wasn't me. So who am I apologizing for? Right. right. So that's where I feel like there might be some differentiation around the guilt or the shame. So Mm -hmm. you kind of have to like almost, I don't mean this to sound flippant, but it almost feels like that deep hurt or shame that you're feeling about stuff that happened before you, you kind of have to let it go because Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. it's not, useful, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not mm-hmm. let it go in the sense that you need to forget it, but let it go right. in the sense that you have to move forward and mm-hmm. sure you're going to fuck up here and there and you'll have the feeling of, of guilt, but it won't be mm-hmm. that deep rooted sense of failure or lack of value about mm-hmm. who you are. Right. 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 I don't know. Is that making right. any sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a, so maybe there's like, you know, when you see an org chart and you have like a direct line, so, you know, I report right. to Lisa or Lisa uh-huh. reports, something like that. I feel like we could do the very same thing in regards to, especially white folks in the United States that may have grandparents, great, 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 great grandparents. I even just uh, downloaded a book, Lisa, about white women who were slave owners at a particular time. All of that, instead of having a direct, solid, bold line between yourself and those family members back historically that did some things that you may not be proud of and would not condone today, 
why not have more of a faint dotted line to those folks? Because you can't completely erase that history that still trickles down, but you can um, create a bit of space between you and that. So not to to deny it, not to say you're ignoring it, but to simply say, Mm -hmm. I'm now redefining who I am and who my family is moving forward. I know differently and better. My kids know differently and better. My grandkids will know differently and better. So still holding on to the history without it completely, um, without having to report to it, if you will. You don't have to be governed by what great, 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 great grandma, grandpa did. Mm -hmm. You just don't. Um, Yeah. So maybe that's a better visual for just understanding that because I'm not with white folks ignoring what their ancestors have done, but I'm also not willing to allow them to become dysfunctional or not helpful, unproductive Mm -hmm. because of it either. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's like letting that emotional connection fade a little bit, not so much that you are not spurred to action. Right. So maybe it moves. I don't know. I feel like shame and guilt are connected by a dotted line. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and I feel like it probably will take us reading Brene Brown and or talking about this much longer to kind of determine that relationship. Maybe they're like distant cousins or something. I don't know that it's necessarily like a linear. You move from shame to guilt, guilt being less powerful than shame. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know that it's that simple, but it does kind of feel like when you put those two together, guilt is easier to move through and shame mm. is more um, stigmatizing. Maybe that is a word. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering too, if, if shame is like, it's almost like quicksand where it sucks you in and sucks you under and you Ooh, can't that's really a good function. Yeah. And yeah. you know, that that's what it's reminding me of at the moment. So yeah, that that's the mm-hmm. first thing that I started thinking about was, oh, it's so debilitating, so debilitating. Um, yeah, yeah. And and with that, you know, again, not useful. Whereas, so if let me make sure I'm not conflating my words here. So if shame is quicksand, I think I don't think you can swim through sh- through shame. I think you can get through guilt, though, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, but now I'm like, you know, all the counselors who are listening are like, no, we can do, we can do work around the kind of emotional and physiological right. feelings of shame, and people can move beyond shame. And, and again, <laughs> right, guess, right, right. I don't think we're necessarily saying you can't move beyond shame, right? But maybe it's just deeper, so right. it's harder. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, and then that's where your mentee, your coachy, right, <laughs> um, right got mm-hmm. stuck right because the work to perhaps move through the kind of deeply felt emotional burden of shame is much harder yeah yeah absolutely absolutely especially mm-hmm. when you know you're you're trying to move through something without being debilit- debilitated by it and so you know given that i don't know i wish i was more of a um a mental health professional because i wonder if there's a connection of how to move through that um, because it can, you know, think about how long you may carry um, shame or guilt and what that can do over a long-term period. You know, that, that to me is also interesting too. I have no idea, but I wonder what happens. It's one thing to have a pang of guilt. It's another thing to carry it for years and years and years. Yeah. And so I think maybe that what you just said there, pang of guilt 
perhaps Mm -hmm. is another way to distinguish the two, right? Like if you're carrying something for a really long time, maybe it's less guilt and more shame. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe we're totally way off base here because, I mean, guilt can be very painful too. Maybe it's just more transitory, you know, and maybe it is more like Mm -hmm. swimming through peanut butter than getting caught in quicksand or something. I don't know. Right. How many analogies can we put in one like a, yeah. podcast? Joel? I feel like I'm going going off the rails here with that. But <laughs> well, you know, look, this is what I think, Lisa. I think what we should do is, I think we should uh, let the listeners weigh in on this particular podcast. I think we should tag Brene Brown so she can let us know uh-huh, whether this uh-huh. was a complete train wreck or whether we're <laughs> onto something. Yeah. I'm sure she will send us free copies of her books that we have not read. Oh, I'm sure she'll do and that. Then, and then we'll get straightened out here. How about that? But that sounds great. I love your plan. <laughs> that's my plan. Look, I am not above uh, tagging someone um, with a big name to come and tell us uh, that's garbage. Okay. So Brene, this is my, um, this is my wallowing of please come help us. Would you like to be on our podcast to tell us the difference between shame and guilt and how that applies to our little old world of endurance sport? Would you please do that? Yeah. I think it's yeah. a great, we're, we're all the way in it. We're all the way in it. So, but yeah, I think there's something to it and I'm, I'm calling us to, to think about these shame storms, are they useful? Are they not? How to get ourselves out of them and even how to identify when they occur. I think there's, there's something to it mm-hmm. uh, that Agreed. we should consider moving forward. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap up with our segment. Hell yeah. Hell nah. Hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. Hell yeah was on point over the holidays. Okay. Because, you know, when you're just sitting on the couch thinking about the workout that you didn't do and you're watching TV, you're watching commercials. And one of my new favorite commercials now is the clear blue digital pregnancy test that's called No Matter What the Result. And I sat there and I was watching it and I realized how much I had been somewhat brainwashed into thinking, even though obviously that's not the case. I had been brainwashed into thinking, oh, yay, pregnant, Woo-hoo, happy, happy. That had been how I'd been brainwashed to expect at least entertainment and TV to show up. Right. And so when there's this commercial that gives vignettes of a number of different women who are about to take their test, all of them are in different life circumstances and the, the pregnancy or not really doesn't matter because it's not the default. Yay. I'm happy that a baby is coming. It's a no matter what the result the test is, I need the test to be accurate and I need it to be whatever works for me, wherever I am in my Mm -hmm. life. So, you know, that attorney or that partner, the, the, the woman that just uh, became partner in her firm, a not pregnant may be ideal for her at the moment. So therefore she's happy for those reasons. That's one of the perspectives that we have not entertained in Mm -mm. a long while. Mm -mm. No. And so I was very impressed. So Clear Blue, th- thank you. I'm very impressed yeah. uh, because it, and this is no judgment on however you would like the result to show up. I'm just grateful that they showed options for how the result can show up and women have a positive response. Parents have a positive response. So I think the next level of uh, representation on the Clear Blue pregnancy test commercials 
is how can we fold non-binary folks into this particular aspect of testing? So mm-hmm. anyway, good job so far. On to the next. Yeah, that's actually freaking awesome because I'm now thinking about this, my socialization. Also, when I think of pregnancy yes. tests, I always think of heterosexual couples and absolute joy when they get the two bars or whatever it is, right? That yeah, they get the, that's the right. positive. Um, mm-hmm. And so acknowledging that that is not always a happy moment, nor are everyone is everyone in a heterosexual settled relationship. That's right. Actually quite groundbreaking, which it shouldn't be for freaking 2021, 2022. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So I was impressed. <laughs> okay. Well, staying kind of in the medical field for our hell now this week, um, at the end of last year, we stumbled across um, a New York times article that talked about how there was a 51% increase in ER visits um, in 2021 for adolescent girls and suicide attempts. And so we find this to be extraordinarily troubling. I mean, it's not a new, um, phenomenon obviously, but there is a significant increase and likely that has to do with COVID and isolation, but a whole host of other issues related to what it means to be an adolescent girl in this world and the pressures that they are facing. And certainly we can appreciate that in the context of endurance sport, right? Because Mm. no, through Dr. Stacey Sims work and others work that um, adolescent girls face a dip in their um, performance right around when they get their period or coming up to that, and then um, Mm -hmm. they drop out of sport. So they're not getting that activity either. And so that can really have detrimental effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a, a sobering hell nah for us because uh, we talk about girls ever so often on this podcast, but obviously we're concerned um, about this particular population. And, um, you know, it really makes me sad to think about this. Um, Lisa, I was talking with a colleague about this in another setting where we were talking about um, student, college student uh, suicide attempts and how even on some college campuses, there's an accepted uh, average rate of suicide attempts when, uh, when it comes to certain very high pressure fields also by identity group. So Mm. for example, um, there's one very large public institution that I used to work at long ago that they knew that there was going to be an average of suicide attempts in their medical school because it's such a high pressure environment. Um, And usually there were a lot of um, minoritized college students um, or or medical students in that particular school. So they would, in fact, be very happy when the number was less than the average percentage each year because it was still happening, obviously, but it was happening at a lesser rate. Mm -hmm. Um, I never want to normalize a, oh, we should expect 20%, 25%. I, I don't want to normalize one human being um, that attempts or feels the the suicidal ideation that comes along with that. So huge hell no. I don't like it. I don't Absolutely. like it. Absolutely. And we'll I include the link to like that it. article in our show notes, folks, so you can read it if you would like. But yeah, awesome. not, not a happy way to end this podcast. Mm-mm. Not at all. Not at all. So, you know, Lisa, let's um, call our podcast uh, listeners too. Um, if there are other things that we can do or even organizations that you're aware of that um, work uh, to sp- to support adolescent girls, especially when it comes to suicide attempts or suicidal ideation, mental health, let us know that as well. We would love to know some of those resources for uh, for girls when it comes to this particular issue as well. So help us to be a better ally when it comes to this particular area. Yeah, great. All right, folks, that's it for this week. We will catch you next week.
The Unfazed Podcasts and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feistytriathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>